0: Chapter three of dr Thorne by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom. Chapter three, dr Thorne. And thus dr Thorne became settled for life in the little village of Greshamsbury. As was then the wont with many country practitioners, and as should be the wont with them all, if they consulted their own dignity a little less, and the comforts of their customers somewhat more, he added the business of a dispensing apothecary to that of physician. In doing so, he was, of course, much reviled. Many people around him declared that he could not truly be a doctor, or at any rate a doctor to be so called, and his brethren in the art living around him Though they knew that his diplomas degrees and certificates were all en règle rather countenanced the report there was much about this newcomer which did not endear him to his own profession in the first place he was a newcomer and as such was of course to be regarded by other doctors as being de trop greshamsbury was only fifteen miles from barchester where there was a regular depot of medical skill, and but eight from Silverbridge, where a properly established physician had been in residence for the last forty years. Dr. Thorne's predecessor at Greshamsbury had been a humble-minded general practitioner, gifted with a due respect for the physicians of the county, and he, though he had been allowed to visit the servants— and sometimes the children of Greshamsbury had never had the presumption to put himself on a par with his betters. Then also Dr. Thorne, though a graduated physician, though entitled beyond all dispute to call himself a doctor, according to all the laws of all the colleges, made it known to the East Barsetshire world very soon after he had seated himself at Greshamsbury that his rate of pay was to be seven and sixpence a visit, within a circuit of five miles, with a proportionally increased charge at proportionally increased distances. Now, there was something low, mean, unprofessional, and democratic in this. So at least said the children of Aesculapius gathered together in conclave at Barchester in the first place it showed that this thorn was always thinking of his money like an apothecary as he was whereas it would have behoved him as a physician had he had the feelings of a physician under his hat to have regarded his own pursuits in a purely philosophical spirit and to have taken any gain which might have accrued as an accidental adjunct to his station in life a physician should take his fee without letting his left hand know what his right hand was doing it should be taken without a thought without a look without a move of the facial muscles the true physician should hardly be aware that the last friendly grasp of the hand had been made more precious by the touch of gold whereas that fellow thorn would lug out half a crown from his breeches pocket and give it in change for a ten-shilling piece and then it was clear that this man had no appreciation of the dignity of a learned profession he might constantly be seen compounding medicines in the shop at the left hand of his front door not making experiments philosophically in Materia Medica for the benefit of coming ages, which if he did he should have done in the seclusion of his study far from profane eyes, but positively putting together common powders for rural bowels, or spreading vulgar ointments for agricultural ailments.' A man of this sort was not fit society for Dr. Philgrave of Barchester, that must be admitted, and yet he had been found to be fit society for the old squire of Greshamsbury, whose shoe-ribbons Dr. Philgrave would not have objected to tie. So high did the old squire stand in the county just previous to his death, but the spirit of the lady arabella was known by the medical profession of barsetshire and when that good man died it was felt that thorn's short tenure of greshamsbury favour was already over the barsetshire regulars were however doomed to disappointment our doctor had already contrived to endear himself to the heir and though there was not even then much personal love between him and the lady arabella he kept his place at the great house unmoved not only in the nursery and in the bedrooms but also at the squire's dining-table now there was in this it must be admitted quite enough to make him unpopular with his brethren and this feeling was soon shown in a marked and dignified manner dr fennelgrave who had certainly the most respectable professional connection in the county, who had a reputation to maintain, and who was accustomed to meet, on almost equal terms, the great medical baronets from the Metropolis, at the houses of the nobility, Dr. Philgrave declined to meet Dr. Thorne in consultation he exceedingly regretted he said most exceedingly the necessity which he felt of doing so he had never before had to perform so painful a duty but as a duty which he owed to his profession he must perform it with every feeling of respect for lady dash a sick guest at greshamsbury and for mr gresham he must decline to attend in conjunction with Dr. Thorne. If his services could be made available under any other circumstances, he would go to Greshamsbury as fast as post-horses could carry him. Then, indeed, there was war in Barsetshire. If there was on Dr. Thorne's cranium one bump more developed than another, it was that of combativeness. Not that the doctor was a bully, or even pugnacious in the usual sense of the word. He had no disposition to provoke a fight, no propense love of quarrelling, but there was that in him which would allow him to yield to no attack. Neither in argument nor in contest would he ever allow himself to be wrong, never at least to any one but to himself." and on behalf of his special hobbies he was ready to meet the world at large. It will therefore be understood that when such a gauntlet was thus thrown in his very teeth by Dr. Philgrave, he was not slow to take it up. He addressed a letter to the Barsetshire Conservative Standard, in which he attacked Dr. Philgrave with some considerable acerbity dr fillgrave responded in four lines saying that on mature consideration he had made up his mind not to notice any remarks that might be made on him by dr thorne in the public press the greshamsbury doctor then wrote another letter more witty and much more severe than the last and as this was copied into the bristol exeter and gloucester papers Dr. Philgrave found it very difficult to maintain the magnanimity of his reticence. It is sometimes becoming enough for a man to wrap himself in the dignified toga of silence, and proclaim himself indifferent to public attacks. But it is a sort of dignity which it is very difficult to maintain. As well might a man, when stung to madness by wasps, endeavour to sit in his chair without moving a muscle, as endure with patience and without reply the courtesies of a newspaper opponent dr thorne wrote a third letter which was too much for medical flesh and blood to bear dr Philgrave answered it not indeed in his own name but in that of a brother doctor and then the war raged merrily it is hardly too much to say that dr phil grave never knew another happy hour had he dreamt of what materials was made that young compounder of doses at greshamsbury he would have met him in consultation morning noon and night without objection but having begun the war he was constrained to go on with it his brethren would allow him no alternative Thus he was continually being brought up to the fight, as a prize-fighter may be seen to be, who is carried up round after round without any hope on his own part, and who in each round drops to the ground before the very wind of his opponent's blows. But Dr. Philgrave, though thus weak himself, was backed in practice and in countenance by nearly all his brethren in the county, the Guinea Fee, THE PRINCIPLE OF GIVING ADVICE AND OF SELLING NO MEDICINE, THE GREAT RESOLVE TO KEEP A DISTINCT BARRIER BETWEEN THE PHYSICIAN AND THE APOTHECARY, AND, ABOVE ALL, THE HATRED OF THE CONTAMINATION OF A BILL, WERE STRONG IN THE MEDICAL MIND OF Barsetshire. DR. THORNE HAD THE PROVINCIAL MEDICAL WORLD AGAINST HIM, AND SO HE APPEALED TO THE METROPOLIS. The Lancet took the matter up in his favour, but the Journal of Medical Science was against him. The weekly Chirurgian, noted for its medical democracy, upheld him as a medical prophet. But the scalping knife, a monthly periodical got up in dead opposition to the Lancet, showed him no mercy. So the war went on, and our doctor, to a certain extent, became a noted character— he had, moreover, other difficulties to encounter in his professional career. It was something in his favour that he understood his business, something that he was willing to labour at it with energy, and resolved to labour at it conscientiously. He had also other gifts, such as conversational brilliancy, an aptitude for true good fellowship, firmness in friendship and general honesty of disposition which stood him instead as he advanced in life but at his first starting much that belonged to himself personally was against him let him enter what house he would he entered it with a conviction often expressed to himself that he was equal as a man to the proprietor equal as a human being to the proprietress to age he would allow deference and to special recognised talent at least so he said to rank also he would pay that respect which was its clear and recognised prerogative he would let a lord walk out of a room before him if he did not happen to forget it in speaking to a duke he would address him as his grace and he would in no way assume a familiarity with bigger men than himself allowing to the bigger man the privilege of making the first advances but beyond this he would admit that no man should walk the earth with his head higher than his own he did not talk of these things much he offended no rank by boasts of his own equality he did not absolutely tell the earl de courcy in words that the privilege of dining at courcy castle was to him no greater than the privilege of dining at Courcy Parsonage, but there was that in his manner that told it. The feeling in itself was perhaps good, and was certainly much justified by the manner in which he bore himself to those below him in rank, but there was folly in the resolution to run counter to the world's recognised rules on such matters, and much absurdity in his mode of doing so, seeing that at heart he was a thorough conservative. It is hardly too much to say that he naturally hated a lord at first sight, but nevertheless he would have expended his means, his blood and spirit, in fighting for the upper house of Parliament. Such a disposition, until it was thoroughly understood, did not tend to ingratiate him with the wives of the country gentlemen among whom he had to look for practice, And then, also, there was not much in his individual manner to recommend him to the favour of ladies. He was brusque, authoritative, given to contradiction, rough, though never dirty in his personal belongings, and inclined to indulge in a sort of quiet raillery, which sometimes was not thoroughly understood. People did not always know whether he was laughing at them or with them, and some people were perhaps inclined to think that a doctor should not laugh at all when called in to act doctorially. When he was known, indeed when the core of the fruit had been reached, when the huge proportions of that loving, trusting heart had been learnt and understood and appreciated, when that honesty had been recognised, that manly, and almost womanly tenderness had been felt. Then, indeed, the doctor was acknowledged to be adequate in his profession. To trifling ailments he was too often brusque. Seeing that he accepted money for the cure of such, he should, we may say, have cured them without an offensive manner. So far he is without defence. But to real suffering no one found him brusque, no patient lying painfully on a bed of sickness ever thought him rough another misfortune was that he was a bachelor ladies think and i for one think that ladies are quite right in so thinking that doctors should be married men all the world feels that a man when married acquires some of the attributes of an old woman he becomes to a certain extent a motherly sort of being he acquires a conversance with women's ways and women's wants and loses the wilder and offensive sparks of his virility it must be easier to talk to such a one about matilda's stomach and the growing pains in fanny's legs than to a young bachelor this impediment also stood much in dr thorne's way during his first years at greshamsbury but his wants were not at first great And though his ambition was perhaps high it was not of an impatient nature the world was his oyster but circumstanced as he was he knew that it was not for him to open it with his lancet all at once he had bread to earn which he must earn wearily he had a character to make which must come slowly it satisfied his soul that in addition to his immortal hopes he had a possible future in this world to which he could look forward with clear eyes and advance with a heart that would know no fainting on his first arrival at greshamsbury he had been put by the squire into a house which he still occupied when that squire's grandson came of age there were two decent commodious private houses in the village always excepting the rectory which stood grandly in its own grounds, and therefore was considered as ranking above the village residences. Of these two, Dr. Thorne had the smaller. They stood exactly at the angle before described, on the outer side of it, and at right angles to each other. They both possessed good stables and ample gardens, and it may be as well to specify that Mr. Umbleby, the agent and lawyer to the estate, occupied the larger one here dr thorne lived for eleven or twelve years all alone and then for ten or eleven more with his niece mary thorne mary was thirteen when she came to take up permanent abode as mistress of the establishment or at any rate to act as the only mistress which the establishment possessed this advent greatly changed the tenor of the doctor's ways he had been before pure bachelor. Not a room in his house had been comfortably furnished. He at first commenced in a makeshift sort of way, because he had not at his command the means of commencing otherwise, and he had gone on in the same fashion, because the exact time had never come at which it was imperative in him to set his house in order. He had had no fixed hour for his meals, no fixed place for his book, no fixed wardrobe for his clothes. He had a few bottles of good wine in his cellar, and occasionally asked a brother bachelor to take a chop with him, but beyond this he had touched very little on the cares of housekeeping. A slop-bowl full of strong tea, together with bread and butter and eggs, was produced for him in the morning, and he expected that at whatever hour he might arrive in the evening some food should be presented to him, wherewith to satisfy the cravings of nature if in addition to this he had another slop-bowl of tea in the evening he got all that he ever required or all at least that he ever demanded but when mary came or rather when she was about to come things were altogether changed at the doctor's people had hitherto wondered and especially mrs umbleby how a gentleman like Dr. Thorne could continue to live in so slovenly a manner, and how people again wondered, and again especially Mrs. Umbleby, how the doctor could possibly think it necessary to put such a lot of furniture into a house, because a little chit of a girl of twelve years of age was coming to live with him. Mrs. Umbleby had great scope for her wonder. The doctor made a thorough revolution in his household, and furnished his house from the ground to the roof completely. He painted for the first time since the commencement of his tenancy. He papered, he carpeted, and curtained, and mirrored, and linened, and blanketed, as though a Mrs. Thorne with a good fortune were coming home to-morrow, and all for a girl of twelve years old. And how— said mrs umbleby to her friend miss gushing how did he find out what to buy as though the doctor had been brought up like a wild beast ignorant of the nature of tables and chairs and with no more developed ideas of drawing-room drapery than an hippopotamus to the utter amazement of mrs umbleby and miss gushing the doctor did it all very well he said nothing about it to any one He never did say much about such things, but he furnished his house well and discreetly, and when Mary Thorne came home from her school at Bath, to which she had been taken some six years previously, she found herself called upon to be the presiding genius of a perfect paradise. It has been said that the doctor had managed to endear himself to the new squire before the old squire's death and that therefore the change at Greshamsbury had had no professional ill-effects upon him. Such was the case at the time, but nevertheless all did not go smoothly in the Greshamsbury Medical Department. There was six or seven years' difference in age between Mr. Gresham and the doctor, and moreover Mr. Gresham was young for his age, and the doctor old. But nevertheless there was a very close attachment between them early in life. This was never thoroughly sundered, and backed by this, the doctor did maintain himself for some years before the fire of Lady Arabella's artillery, but drops falling, if they fall constantly, will bore through a stone. Dr. Thorne's pretensions, mixed with his subversive professional democratic tendencies, his seven-and-sixpenny visits, added to his utter disregard of Lady Arabella's heirs, were too much for her spirit. He brought Frank through his first troubles, and that at first ingratiated her. He was equally successful with the early dietary of Augusta and Beatrice, but as his success was obtained in direct opposition to the Courcy Castle nursery principles, this hardly did much in his favour when the third daughter was born he at once declared that she was a very weakly flower and sternly forbade the mother to go to london the mother loving her babe obeyed but did not the less hate the doctor for the order which she firmly believed was given at the instance and express dictation of mr gresham then another little girl came into the world And the doctor was more imperative than ever as to the nursery rules and the excellence of country air quarrels were thus engendered and lady arabella was taught to believe that this doctor of her husbands was after all no solomon in her husband's absence she sent for dr philgrave giving very express intimation that he would not have to wound either his eyes or dignity by encountering his enemy, and she found Dr. Philgrave a great comfort to her. Then Dr. Thorne gave Mr. Gresham to understand that under such circumstances he could not visit professionally at Greshamsbury any longer. The poor squire saw that there was no help for it, and though he still maintained his friendly connection with his neighbour, the Seven-and-Sixpenny visits were at an end, Dr. Philgrave from Barchester and the gentleman at Silverbridge divided the responsibility between them, and the nursery principles of Courcy Castle were again in vogue at Greshamsbury. So things went on for years, and those years were years of sorrow. We must not ascribe to our doctor's enemies the sufferings and sickness and deaths that occurred. The four frail little ones that died— would probably have been taken had lady arabella been more tolerant of dr thorne but the fact was that they did die and that the mother's heart then got the better of the woman's pride and lady arabella humbled herself before dr thorne she humbled herself or would have done so had the doctor permitted her but he with his eyes full of tears stopped the utterance of her apology took her two hands in his, pressed them warmly, and assured her that his joy in returning would be great for the love that he bore to all that belonged to Greshamsbury. And so the seven-and-sixpenny visits were recommenced, and the great triumph of Dr. Philgrave came to an end. Great was the joy in the Greshamsbury nursery when the second change took place, among the doctor's attributes not hitherto mentioned was an aptitude for the society of children he delighted to talk to children and to play with them he would carry them on his back three or four at a time roll with them on the ground race with them in the garden invent games for them contrive amusements in circumstances which seemed quite adverse to all manner of delight and above all his physic was not nearly so nasty as that which came from silverbridge he had a great theory as to the happiness of children and though he was not disposed altogether to throw over the precepts of solomon always bargaining that he should under no circumstances be himself the executioner he argued that the principal duty which a parent owed to a child was to make him happy Not only was the man to be made happy, the future man, if that might be possible, but the existing boy was to be treated with equal favour, and his happiness, so said the doctor, was of much easier attainment. Why struggle after future advantage at the expense of present pain, seeing that the results were so very doubtful? Many an opponent of the doctor had thought to catch him on the hip when so singular a doctrine was broached. But they were not always successful. What, said his sensible enemies, is Johnny not to be taught to read because he does not like it? Johnny must read by all means, would the doctor answer. But is it necessary that he should not like it? If the preceptor have it in him, may not Johnny learn not only to read, but to like to learn to read. But, would say his enemies children must be controlled and so must men also would say the doctor i must not steal your peaches nor make love to your wife nor libel your character much as i might wish through my natural depravity to indulge in such vices i am debarred from them without pain and i may almost say without unhappiness and so the argument went on neither party convincing the other, but in the meantime the children of the neighbourhood became very fond of Dr Thorne. Dr Thorne and the squire were still fast friends, but circumstances had occurred, spreading themselves now over a period of many years, which almost made the poor squire uneasy in the doctor's company. Mr Gresham owed a large sum of money, and he had moreover already sold a portion of his property, unfortunately it had been the pride of the greshams that their acres had descended from one to another without an entail so that each possessor of greshamsbury had had the full power to dispose of the property as he pleased any doubt as to its going to the male heir had never hitherto been felt it had occasionally been encumbered by charges for younger children but these charges had been liquidated and the property had come down without any burden to the present squire. Now a portion of this had been sold, and it had been sold to a certain degree through the agency of Dr. Thorne. This made the squire an unhappy man. No man loved his family name and honour, his old family blazon and standing, more thoroughly than he did. He was every whit of Gresham at heart but his spirit had been weaker than that of his forefathers, and in his days, for the first time, the Greshams were to go to the wall. Ten years before the beginning of our story, it had been necessary to raise a large sum of money to meet and pay off pressing liabilities, and it was found that this could be done with more material advantage by selling a portion of the property than in any other way. A portion of it, about a third of the whole in value, was accordingly sold. Boxall Hill lay half-way between Greshamsbury and Barchester, and was known as having the best partridge shooting in the county, as having on it also a celebrated fox cover, Boxall Gorse, held in very high repute by Barsetshire sportsmen. There was no residence on the immediate estate. And it was altogether divided from the remainder of the greshamsbury property this with many inward and outward groans mr gresham permitted to be sold it was sold and sold well by private contract to a native of barchester who having risen from the world's ranks had made for himself great wealth somewhat of this man's character must hereafter be told it will suffice to say that he relied for advice in money matters upon dr thorne and that at dr thorne's suggestion he had purchased boxall hill partridge shooting and gorse cover all included he had not only bought boxall hill but had subsequently lent the squire large sums of money on mortgage in all which transactions the doctor had taken part It had therefore come to pass that Mr. Gresham was not unfrequently called upon to discuss his money affairs with Dr. Thorne, and occasionally to submit to lectures and advice, which might perhaps as well have been omitted. So much for Dr. Thorne. A few words must still be said about Miss Mary before we rush into our story. The crust will then have been broken, and the pie will be open to the guests. Little Miss Mary was kept at a farmhouse till she was six; she was then sent to school at Bath, and transplanted to the doctor's newly furnished house a little more than six years after that. It must not be supposed that he had lost sight of his charge during her earlier years; he was much too well aware of the nature of the promise which he had made to the departing mother to do that. He had constantly visited his little niece, and long before the first twelve years of her life were over, had lost all consciousness of his promise, and of his duty to the mother, in the stronger ties of downright personal love for the only creature that belonged to him. When Mary came home, the doctor was like a child in his glee. He prepared surprises for her with as much forethought and trouble as though he were contriving minds to blow up an enemy. He took her first into the shop, and then into the kitchen, thence to the dining-rooms, after that to his and her bedrooms, and so on till he came to the full glory of the new drawing-room, enhancing the pleasure by little jokes, and telling her that he should never dare to come into the last paradise without her permission, and not then, till he had taken off his boots. Child as she was, she understood the joke, and carried it on like a little queen, and so they soon became the firmest of friends. But though Mary was a queen, it was still necessary that she should be educated, those were the earlier days in which lady arabella had humbled herself and to show her humility she invited mary to share the music lessons of augusta and beatrice at the great house a music master from barchester came over three times a week and remained for three hours and if the doctor chose to send his girl over she could pick up what was going on without doing any harm so said the lady arabella The doctor, with many thanks and with no hesitation, accepted the offer, merely adding that he had perhaps better settle separately with Signor Cantabile, the music-master. He was very much obliged to Lady Arabella for giving his little girl permission to join her lessons to those of the Miss Greshams. It need hardly be said that the Lady Arabella was on fire at once. Settle with Signor Cantabile! No, indeed, she would do that. There must be no expense whatever incurred in such an arrangement on Miss Thorne's account. But here, as in most things, the doctor carried his point. It being the time of the lady's humility, she could not make as good a fight as she would otherwise have done, and thus she found to her great disgust that Mary Thorne was learning music in her schoolroom on each terms as regarded payment with her own daughters the arrangement having been made could not be broken especially as the young lady in nowise made herself disagreeable and more especially as the miss greshams themselves were very fond of her and so mary thorne learnt music at greshamsbury and with her music she learnt other things also how to behave herself among girls of her own age how to speak and talk as other young ladies do how to dress herself and how to move and walk all which she being quick to learn learnt without trouble at the great house something also she learnt of french seeing that the greshamsbury french governess was always in the room and then some few years later there came a rector and a rector's sister and with the latter Mary studied German and French also. From the doctor himself she learnt much, the choice namely of English books for her own reading, and habits of thought somewhat akin to his own, though modified by the feminine softness of her individual mind. And so Mary Thorne grew up and was educated. Of her personal appearance it certainly is my business as an author to say something. She is my heroine and as such must necessarily be very beautiful. But in truth her mind and inner qualities are more clearly distinct to my brain than her outward form and features. I know that she was far from being tall and far from being showy, that her feet and hands were small and delicate, that her eyes were bright when looked at, but not brilliant so as to make their brilliancy palpably visible to all around her, her hair was dark brown and worn very plainly brushed from her forehead her lips were thin and her mouth perhaps in general inexpressive but when she was eager in conversation it would show itself to be animated with curves of wondrous energy and quiet as she was in manner sober and demure as was her usual settled appearance she could talk when the fit came on her with an energy which in truth surprised those who did not know her, ay, and sometimes those who did. Energy, nay, it was occasionally a concentration of passion, which left her for the moment perfectly unconscious of all other cares but solicitude for that subject which she might then be advocating. All her friends, including the doctor, had at times been made unhappy by this vehemence of character, but yet it was to that very vehemence that she owed it that all her friends so loved her. It had once nearly banished her in early years from the Greshamsbury schoolroom, and yet it ended in making her claim to remain there so strong that Lady Arabella could no longer oppose it, even when she had the wish to do so. A new French governess had lately come to Greshamsbury, and was— or was to be a great pet with lady arabella having all the great gifts with which a governess can be endowed and being also a protégé from the castle the castle in greshamsbury parlance always meant that of courcy soon after this a valued little locket belonging to augusta gresham was missing the french governess had objected to its being worn in the schoolroom and it had been sent up to the bedroom by a young servant-girl, the daughter of a small farmer on the estate. The locket was missing, and after a while a considerable noise in the matter having been made was found, by the diligence of the governess, somewhere among the belongings of the English servant. Great was the anger of Lady Arabella! Loud were the protestations of the girl! Mute the woe of her father! piteous the tears of her mother inexorable the judgment of the greshamsbury world but something occurred it matters now not what to separate mary thorne in opinion from that world at large out she then spoke and to her face accused the governess of the robbery for two days mary was in disgrace almost as deep as that of the farmer's daughter but she Was neither quiet nor dumb in her disgrace when lady arabella would not hear her she went to mr gresham she forced her uncle to move in the matter she gained over to her side one by one the potentates of the parish and ended by bringing mademoiselle laurent down on her knees with a confession of the facts from that time mary thorne was dear to the tenantry of greshamsbury and specially dear at one small household, where a rough-spoken father of a family was often heard to declare that for Miss Mary Thorne he'd face man or magistrate, duke or devil. And so Mary Thorne grew up under the doctor's eye, and at the beginning of our tale she was one of the guests assembled at Greshamsbury on the coming of age of the heir, she herself having then arrived at the same period of her life. End of chapter three, recording by Nick Whitley, Purley, United Kingdom.